On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Father, we, uh, we want this time to be pleasing to you and profitable for us. So I am asking that the resurrection of Jesus would be clear, that you would allow me to uh, speak persuasively and cogently. I pray that you would give uh, those who have uh, gathered an opportunity to come to a certainty and an assurance of the resurrection of Jesus for themselves. For that to happen, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to lead us, guide us, convict us, instruct us, and have your way with us. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, as we get into it, tonight's topic is, uh, did Jesus rise from death? That's a question we will answer in our time together. And I'll start with a quote from Hugh Hefner, uh, founder of Playboy. And my wife wanted me to tell you that I didn't get this out of an issue that showed up at my house in the mail that uh, I do not subscribe to Playboy. I do not endorse subscribing to Playboy. And if you do have a blog, don't say that I do. Uh, but uh, the reason I'm quoting it is I think Hugh Hefner is living sort of the dream life, at least for a lot of men. A lot of men wish they had Hugh Hefner's life. And he is living the dream life. And one day he will die. And the question is, what happens to him? What happens to us when we die. So I found this quote on the internet, and no, it didn't accompany any pictures. It was just all words. And they interviewed him for Playboy. They asked, what do you believe happens after death? Right? He's living the dream that so many men want to live. What happens when you die? And he says, quote, I haven't a clue. And then at the end of the interview, he says, because we have no such answers. Okay, that is a very common position that maybe even some of you have. You live your life, when you die, who knows what happens? Some say you go to heaven, some say you go to hell, some say you reincarnate, some say you go to purgatory, some say nothing happens, you just become mulch in the ground, no one knows. And that is the position of many. Now, as Christians, what we believe is that death is our enemy. That's what Scripture says. We hate death. That's why we buckle up, drink bottled water, right? We want to live. We don't want to die. But eventually, death wins, and we all die, and death is the result of sin. So we all sin. We all die. Sin and death win, and we die. The question then begs to be answered, what then? What happens after we die? Hefner says, there is no way to answer that question because no one knows and we cannot have a clue. As Christians, we believe that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and three days later, Jesus came back from death and he is the Lord of life and death. And he tells us what awaits us on the other side of the grave because he's the only person who has crossed over and then returned conquering death to tell us what awaits us on the other side of death death. And this is the fact upon which the Christian faith is built. Okay? Christianity is not built just on good teaching or moral principles or philosophical inquiries. Christianity is rooted in this historical fact, so much so that in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the most lengthy treatise of the resurrection theologically in the New Testament, we are told by the Apostle Paul that if Jesus is still dead, then we are just pitiful fools and that there is no reason for us to have any hope beyond the grave, that sin and death win, and there is no possibility of good news beyond that. And so he rightly establishes everything uh, in conjunction with the resurrection of Jesus. And so for us as Christians, if you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus, you literally pull the bottom piece out of the Christian Jenga game and the entirety of our religion crumbles and falls apart. And so we'll answer the question of the resurrection of Jesus, and I will do so looking at three different lines of evidence. I'll look at biblical evidence, circumstantial evidence, and historical evidence. I'll begin my inquiry into the biblical evidence by telling you that Jesus repeatedly, emphatically, and clearly said, I will die, I will be buried, and three days later, I will rise, conquering death like no one else ever has or will. I've got the uh, references in your notes. This was something he said very often. It was 
clearly what he believed and taught, and in so doing, he was preparing people for the fact of his resurrection. I'll give you one example to illustrate my point out of Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is a title that he took for himself from Daniel, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Here's what Jesus said. I'm alive now. Everybody's going to turn their back on me. They're going to kill me. They're going to bury me. But three days later, I will rise conquering death. I'll be back. Stole Schwarzenegger's line. I'll be back. I'm coming back three days later. So Jesus did live and he was killed. Okay. And I, let me emphasize this point. He died. I tell you that because some will say that he didn't. Many Muslim scholars, and we're not Muslims, we're Christians, we don't believe in the Quran, but many Muslim scholars who study the Quran will tell you, Jesus didn't die on the cross, he passed out, he swooned, it looked like he died. Well, it looked like he died because he died. Uh, additionally, Christian scientists will tell you, based upon the teaching of their founder, Mary Baker Eddy, she says emphatically, Jesus did not die on the cross. And we're not Christian scientists either. By the way, I think that Christian science is false advertising because they're not Christian and they don't have science. It's kind of like grape nuts. If you ever bought a grape nut cereal box, you open the box, you're like, hey, there's no grapes and there's no nuts. Why do they call this grape nuts? I think that same thing about Christian science. Hey, there's no Christians and there's no science. This is like grape nuts. Somebody, somebody put the wrong name on the box. Anyways... They, those kind of people will say Jesus didn't die. Jesus died. Okay, I'll tell you what happened to him. And you'll see he died. And if he didn't die, we have a bigger miracle than the resurrection. Uh, he was run through a series of false trials at night. And then he was beat up by a mob. And then he was flogged, right, where they ripped the flesh off his body. Many men died from the flogging, the beating and the scourging was so severe. Then they made him carry about a hundred pound wooden cross across his totally devastated, broken, bloodied, beaten body. And then they took five to seven inch spikes. They pounded them into his hands and feet, which was the professional mode of execution, their version of an electric chair. They crucified him. A professional executioner saw him breathe his last and confirmed he's dead. And then just to make sure they took a spear and they ran it under his rib cage while he was still on the cross, and it punctured and shattered his heart sack so that water and blood flowed out. Right? He's really dead. I mean, he stopped breathing, and then they caused his heart to explode. It's, I mean, you're really dead if you don't have a heart. I don't know if you know this. There's no backup. Uh, right? Oh, my heart went out. Good thing the other one works. I mean, this is not have, like having dual tanks on a pickup truck, right? I mean, once it's gone, it's gone. That's all you got. And then they took him down. They wrapped him in about 100 pounds of linen and spices like a mummified state. If he was still alive, breathing without the heart, uh, then he would have suffocated. They put him in a cold tomb hewn out of rock, so it's freezing. Now his body, if he was breathing without the heart or the ability to gather air because he's a mummified state, then he would have died by shock, no medical treatment, no food, no water for three days. You know why it looked like he died? He died. Even if you went to public school, you go, yeah, that's, that's definitely what it seems like. Yeah, <laughs> he died. Okay, so he died. I mean, some argue against that and it's like, all right, fine. That's cute. Um, Jesus said he would die. He died and then he was buried and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, 9 prophesied 700 years, even before Jesus was born, that he would be buried with the rich in his death. Now, Jesus wasn't a rich guy. He was flat broke, homeless, carpenter, peasant, didn't have money. He was a broke guy. But when he died, one of his more quiet secret disciples, a gentleman named Joseph of Arimathea, stepped forward and said, well, Jesus has nowhere for his body to be laid. He has nowhere to be buried. So what I'm going to do is gift him my tomb. I'll give him my burial plot as a gift for departed dead Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known man. He was affluent. He was educated. He was powerful. He was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of 70 leaders who voted for the execution of Jesus. As such, that was the equivalent of ruling in the Jewish 
people's community like a Supreme Court justice in our nation. These are people that everybody knows. They're really powerful. They're really successful. They're really smart. They're really respected. As a result, everyone would have known where his tomb was. It wasn't an unknown location. And if perchance they got the wrong tomb, some have said, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb and they thought Jesus had risen because his body wasn't there. Well, they would have been able to easily confirm that going to Joseph of Arimathea, a very well-known prominent man, and saying, where is the tomb that you gave Jesus? And he could take them there to verify whether or not Jesus' body still remained in the tomb. Jesus was laid to rest in that tomb, wrapped in the burial linens and spices, and three days later, he rose. He rose from death. There was a stone, a large stone that would have taken a few men to move that covered the entryway. There was the seal of the Roman government on it saying that no one was to tamper with the body. There were guards posted outside, you know, the, the equivalent of the Marines or the seals. Uh, the Navy seals were protecting the tomb. I mean, this was a very official state business. Everybody knew where it was. The guards were there. The government placed a seal there. Joseph of Arimathea owned the tomb. This is not in some obscure location. And he rose from death, Jesus did. And within weeks, months, maybe at most uh, a year or two, after his resurrection, Christians started putting together their creed. And their creed was about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. This was a succinct doctrinal statement that the early Christians put together to lay out the central beliefs of Christianity that now 2,000 years later, we still believe Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, Protestant Christians all agree on these facts. Some will tell you that the legend of Jesus' resurrection is just that, a legend. It's a myth. It's a fable. It's a folklore. It's like... Uh, the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy or the Mariners getting, starting pitch, pitching. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's just a fantasy, right? And they will say that it was invented by Christians hundreds of years after Jesus lived, after the eyewitnesses were dead and gone, and that Jesus is fine, but the church has corrupted the truth about Jesus, and we've invented this mythic resurrected figure And they will say that they love the Jesus of history, but not the Jesus of faith. And they will distinguish the two. But the creed that early Christians started believing and articulating was put together shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, when the eyewitnesses were still alive, long before there was time for myth, legend, fable, folklore, and fairy tale to accrue. Somewhere between the year 30 and 36 AD, right after Jesus' resurrection, this creed was put together that became very popular and spread throughout Christianity, and it is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there we read, this creed says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried... He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. The the core beliefs, doctrine, theology, creed of the early Christians was Jesus lived, Jesus died for our sins, Jesus was buried. Three days later, Jesus rose like he said he would, and he appeared to a lot of witnesses. So this is a widely known, verifiable fact. And so this is the centerpiece of Christian faith. Again, if this is not true, then Christianity ceases to exist. It has literally no foundation upon which to be built. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a known tomb that was guarded. Three days later, Jesus rose from death, and lots of people saw it. And the Bible goes on to talk about those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is important because some will tell you that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth borrowed from other religions. And other religions maybe have some concept of a resurrection. And they'll say that Christians stole the concept of the resurrection from these other religions. That is not true. And one of the reasons we know it is not true is that those accounts tend to be very mythical and fanciful. The account of the resurrection of Jesus is very historical, it's very factual, and it is very verifiable. That's the way the story is told. And we are told repeatedly, this person saw him risen, this person saw him risen. And the result is, as I will show you in a moment, there is a list of hundreds of eyewitnesses. Different times, different places, different circumstances, young, old, rich, poor, male, female, all kinds of appearances. The Bible says that following his resurrection, Jesus appeared for 40 days. 
to make sure that everyone knew that he was alive before he returned to heaven as God where he had come from. Okay, and in that day, the day when there wasn't such a thing as you know, a, a video camera to record things, eyewitness testimony was the most assured way to come to factual truth. And having a list of hundreds of eyewitnesses is the Bible's way of seeing, saying essentially, go and interview them and double check the facts for yourself because they all will say the same thing. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and then they saw him alive. And, and there are many lists. I will go through them briefly. They are in your notes. But Mary Magdalene saw him, Cleopas and another disciple on another occasion. On another occasion, 10 apostles, as well as others saw him, seven apostles on a different occasion, all 12 apostles on a few occasions. A crowd of 500 people at one time saw him. 1 Corinthians 15 says at least 500 people were out to see Jesus risen from death. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is not an obscure, unknown, historical tidbit. 500 people. Some have said, well, they missed Jesus so much that they kind of invented the resurrection. They had a hallucination. 500 people don't have the same hallucination, right? Hallucination is a private experience. Any of you who have done shrooms, you know that, right? I'm not saying you should. Uh, it's a sin. But if you have, you have a private hallucination. It's not shared by 500 people. Right? People have individual hallucinations, not 500 people. If 500 people walk into court and all testify one after the other and say the exact same thing, it's because it's a fact. That's what it means. Furthermore, Paul saw Jesus risen from death. We'll deal with that momentarily. Other women saw him. 11 disciples as well as other people on another occasion. Thomas as well as the other apostles. And Thomas was the doubter. He said, well, I've heard Jesus is alive, but like some of you, he said, I won't believe it till I see it for myself. And he went on your behalf and he touched Jesus' crucifixion scars and he verified that Jesus had risen from death and he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, my Lord and my God, and he worshiped Jesus. Following the resurrection, the disciples as well saw him as did Peter and Jesus' brother James. Now, some of you may say, but this is not uh, trustworthy historical information. And the answer is, well, of course it is. The Bible, if it were lying, wouldn't give the list of all the eyewitnesses to go double check and verify. I mean, if this were to end up in court, all they would have to do is pull out the scriptures and say, well, let's call in all these witnesses. They're all still alive. And let's see if they in fact saw him risen from death. Another reason that we know that these accounts of eyewitness testimony of the resurrection are accurate is because they are so heavily weighed on women. This may uh, surprise some of you, but before the advent of Christianity, women were not well treated, uh, that women were not treated well in most religions and considered second-class citizens. And in that culture, they were not, exam for example, allowed to testify in court because the testimony of a woman was not widely respected. Yet Jesus loved women, Jesus affirmed women, Jesus encouraged women. And women loved Jesus very dearly, so much so that when he died, they went to visit his tomb to mourn and to grieve. And when they got there, it was the women who were the first on scene to see that the, the stone had been rolled away, that the tomb was empty, that Jesus' burial clothes were just laying there because he had risen from death. And the women came back and gave the first report of the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that important? Because if the story of the resurrection of Jesus were a lie and it were falsified and made up, there would not have been heavily weighted eyewitness testimony about women because they are not the most credible witness and not fit to come in for court proceedings. So the reason that there are women mentioned in the story is because that's what really happened. Not because it was made up. It was made up. It would not be made up this way. This is not the best way to tell a lie. This is, in fact, not the most effective way to tell a lie. But because it talks about women, that is a line of evidence that it's the truth, that it lists all of these eyewitnesses, and it lists women as credible eyewitnesses. Additionally, Jesus' most ardent enemies converted, believed he was God, began worshiping him as God, and had a total transformation. Chief among them was a man named Saul of Tarsus. You may know him as Paul. What was he doing before he became a Christian pastor? You remember? He was murdering Christians. He was the terrorist in his day. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. The first time we meet him in the book of Acts, he is present at the murder of the early church deacon, a man named Stephen. 
He was murdering a Christian because he was saying that Jesus rose from death. And he later on became a Christian because he was convinced that Jesus rose from death because he too saw the risen Jesus. Now this may shock you, but Paul had no inclination to become a Christian. He was in no way predisposed. It is the equivalent today of Osama bin Laden becoming a Christian. So much so that in his day, when he became a Christian, the Christians were still freaked out by him and didn't trust him, right? Because when the guy who murders Christians comes to your Bible study and says, hey, I got saved. Let's all close our eyes and pray. You're like, no, no. Pray with one eye open, but I'm not closing both eyes, Osama. We're going to make the two big guys sit next to you. And if you screw around, they're going to send you to see Jesus, all right? We're not putting up with any of this. We don't trust you. And that's how they viewed Paul. They didn't trust him, right? It took a while for the church to build trust with this guy. I mean, you can imagine, you know, terrorist comes in and wants to be a deacon. You're like, oh yeah, what service is he going to? I'll be at the other one, you know? Uh, That was Paul. And so when your most ardent opponents, those who hate and despise you and your followers, convert and say, Jesus rose from death, that is good evidence that it's just true. Furthermore, Jesus' own family worshiped him as God. He had a mother and he had two brothers at least. Right, we're going to deal with this in a few weeks. Jesus' mother was a virgin when she got married, but she wasn't a virgin in the marriage. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we highly encourage women to be virgins until they're married. And then we highly discourage virginity. You know what I'm saying? Uh, most husbands do as well. They're like, I married a virgin. And she still is. I want to kill myself. Uh, <laughs> She had intimacy with her husband, as she was supposed to, uh, later on in the marriage, and she gave birth to two boys, James and Jude. And they, Mary, Jesus' mother, James and Jude, his brothers, did not think he was God, did not worship him as God till after the resurrection. In fact, during his life, they thought, he's lost it, right? He's, he lost it. And they went to him on one occasion when he was teaching and they wanted to bring him home because he kept saying he was God, came down from heaven, could forgive sin. And they thought, you know, the poor kid's gone nuts. So they came in to pick him up. They're like, we'll get you some meds. We'll take you to see Dr. Phil. You know, we'll get this all figured out. You know, you're bipolar. You're obviously having a manic episode. You think you're Jesus. You know, I mean, and, and that's what they thought about Jesus, They thought that he was little nuts. Yet, after his resurrection, they were convinced. He is God like he said. He beats sin and death like he said. So much so that his two brothers became Christians and worshipped him as God. Now, how many of you have brothers? I have two brothers. Have you ever thought, my brother might be God? (laughs) More likely, my brother might be Satan. That's what you thought, right? Because brothers are sadists. They do horrible things, right? I mean, so many of you spent half your childhood looking out the hole in your underwear because your brother pulled your underwear over your head. I mean, he just did that to do it. I mean, he was sick, right? Just mean. Uh, Brothers can do horrible things. What would it take for you to worship your brother as God? (laughs) At least a resurrection, right? At least a resurrection. Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, became Christians and pastors, They wrote books of the Bible bearing their names, James and Jude. James became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, one of the most prominent churches in early Christianity. And we're talking about a good Jewish family who doesn't just worship people as God, right? The first two commandments are there's one God, don't worship anyone or anything but that one true God or you're going to go to hell. So for these good Jewish boys and their mother to worship Jesus as God, it took the evidence of the resurrection, so much so that Jesus' own mother worshiped him as God. I love my mom, but anyone who's changed your diaper probably isn't going to worship you as God unless they get the kind of evidence that the resurrection provides. Yet what we find is following the resurrection, there were the 120 early Christians gathered in the upper room worshiping Jesus. He had risen, appeared for 40 days, ascended back into heaven, and then the early Christians got together to sing to him and pray to him and worship him. Among them was Mary, his mother. That's what the early chapters of Acts record, that she would sing to her son as God, pray to her son as God. Her trust was in her son as God. 
That is the biblical evidence. Jesus said he would die and rise three days later. Jesus died. Jesus was laid in a well-known, mark-guarded tomb of a known affluent man. And the government knew exactly where that body was laid. Three days later, Jesus rose from death. He appeared over the course of 40 days to hundreds of people, different times, locations, settings, circumstances, backgrounds, genders, that he then ascended into heaven. His enemies, like Saul, believed it was true, had a change of heart, became Christians. His brothers also had a change of heart, worshiped him as God, became Christians, as did his own mother, Mary. Those are the biblical lines of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Let me proceed from there to the circumstantial lines of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. In giving these, I want to express the burden of proof is answered by Christians, and it remains on those who are not Christians who would disprove the resurrection to give some other cause for these effects. What I'm saying is this. I will explain to you all the changes that happened after the resurrection of Jesus that are only explained by the resurrection of Jesus. And if you doubt the resurrection of Jesus, or if you want to deny the resurrection of Jesus, the burden of proof is on you to say, well, how did all of these things happen if Jesus was still dead? There needs to be a cause that explains these corollary um, effects. Uh, The first being that the disciples had a total transformation of character. Before the resurrection of Jesus, they were cowards. They were not ultimate fighters. They were ultimate chickens. That's what they were, right? They were cowards. They didn't like conflict. They didn't want to get hurt. They didn't want to be persecuted. Uh, Perhaps the most stark example of this is Peter, the leader of the disciples, who as Jesus was going to his place of crucifixion, Peter was hanging back in the shadows, not wanting to get hurt or in trouble or have any conflict or controversy. A young gal, maybe a junior high girl, came up to him and said, hey, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? He said, oh, no, 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 I don't know him. He cussed her out. I never met the guy. I don't know anything. Why? Because he wet himself in the presence of a teenage girl because that's what a chicken he was. I'm expanding the story, but you get the point, right? There's wet pant Peter who can't even take an accusation from a teenage girl. That's what I'm saying. Yet Jesus dies, rises, Peter sees him risen from death, and then his voice drops, he enters into his spiritual man state, and all of a sudden he's courageous, bold, preaching, persecuted Peter. That's what he is. So much so that they go to him and they say, Peter, if you don't renounce the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to kill you. He says, bring it on. I saw Jesus come back. I'll see you later. You can kill me. It doesn't scare me. I've seen the resurrected Jesus. I know what happens to those who die with faith in him. We come back. They said, then we're going to crucify you. Fine. We're going to crucify you. Fine. Crucify me upside down. I'll go out like a man. Right? I'm not wet pant Peter anymore. I'm Peter the preacher. I'm the Peter the man, the courageous bold man who saw the resurrected Jesus and got his courage. The question is, how do you explain the transformation of these men? Men like Peter. If Jesus was dead, you wouldn't have seen him get more courageous and die for the lie. Not going to happen. Second line of circumstantial evidence is if you believe that the disciples lied and made up the story of the resurrection, you have to answer the question of motive, right? You and I, when we lie, we tell lies that are to our advantage, right? I mean, that's what online dating, for example, is all about. (laughs) You Photoshop yourself and I'm witty and funny. No, you're not. You're peculiar and drunk. (laughs) But you don't say that because that's not advantageous. You lie. Lies get us more fame, more pleasure, more money, you know, more of whatever it is that we value. We tend not to tell lies that get us killed, right? We don't lie. You know, we don't call the government. Hi, it's Mark. I'm a terrorist and I'm going to blow some stuff up. You know, just make that up. We don't make up those kind of lies. Lies are only to our advantage. The question is, if you're going to say the disciples lied, you have to ask, well, why? What did they get? Fame? No. Did they get glory? No. Did they get money? No. What did they get? Murdered. I don't know about you. I don't tend to tell lies that get me murdered. I tend to tell lies that give me ham sandwiches and friendship, but not murdered, right? I mean, that's how lies work. Plus, you got to look at the character of these guys. They feed the widows, the orphans, the poor. They walk away from their good paying jobs to go do lives of, uh, of service and mercy. Are these liars? And if they were liars, 
Do you think all the liars would tell the lie till the end, to the point of being murdered? I mean, 11 out of the 12 disciples were murdered for telling the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. The only one who didn't die from a murderous death was John, who was boiled alive, didn't die, and was exiled off to Patmos, which is near modern-day Turkey. I don't know about you, if I made something up, as soon as I'm going into the fry cooker at Jack in the Box, that's when I change my story, amen? Like, I'm in the fry cooker at Jack in the Box. I was just kidding about that whole resurrection thing. John's the only one who didn't die a a martyr's death, but they tried and he suffered mightily. How many of you, when they went to crucify you or boil you alive, you would recant if you'd been telling a lie. Yet not one of the 12 disciples recanted. They all held firmly to their story, even though they were scattered, being picked off, murdered, and killed. Not one of them recanted, and there was much pressure on them to do so. Had they done so, they may have been rewarded, their life may have gone much easier, and they may have been off the hook. But they said, no, Jesus died, Jesus rose. I believe in Jesus, kill me if you want. You can't scare me with death. He's already conquered it, and I will live forever with him. That's the burden of proof. Somebody's awake, this is awesome. You guys are the most emo indie rock crowd. I mean, it's just crazy. I I feel like pumping Red Bull into the air just to wake the whole room up. But uh, third third line of reasoning is you you have to explain the alteration of the day of worship. Orthodox Jews for millennia worshiped on what day? Saturday. Because in the Old Testament, that was the day of the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You obey God, you worship him on Saturday. That's the Sabbath day. Following the resurrection of Jesus, when did those Jews and the early church was in large part Jews, those Jews who believed in the resurrection of Jesus saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament promise and prophecy. Therefore, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. It's not just about Saturday. It's about Jesus. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you Sabbath, Jesus said. Jesus said, if you want rest, it's not just Saturday you need. It's me. They said, you know what? It's not Saturday. It's Jesus. Saturday was just getting us ready for Jesus. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled everything. We need to worship Jesus now on Sunday because it's a whole new world because Sunday is the day of what? The resurrection of Jesus. And so good Orthodox Jews stopped worshiping on Saturday, started worshiping on Sunday. Why? Well, that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. And they had to probably meet early in the morning or late at night. Because Sunday was a work day. It was their Monday. This is another line of reasoning. Can you imagine if I started a religion that required that all services be at 5 a.m. on Monday? (laughs) It would not get off to a fast and furious start, would it? 5 a.m. on Monday. But that is essentially the kind of time they would have had to meet. They would have to meet in the morning before work. They were used to having Saturday off, but they all started going to services on Sunday because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. Some of you say, well, I thought Easter was the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. No, Sunday's the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Easter just happens to be one of those Sundays. Every Sunday is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and that is why Christian churches tend to meet on Sunday. That's resurrection day. If Jesus didn't rise, why did everybody start worshiping on Sunday? Not only was the day of worship changed, the next line of evidence, circumstantially, is the object of worship was, tr- was changed. Again, the first two commandments, there's only one God, worship that God or go to hell. That's the deal. And now people began worshiping Jesus as God. Good Old Testament Bible-believing devout folks started worshiping Jesus as God. Why? Why? I mean, two guys were killed with Jesus, one on each side. Nobody's worshiping those two guys, right? They didn't get a religion out of the deal, People began worshiping Jesus because he rose from death, unlike the other two men that nobody worshiped. Fifth line of reasoning is there were theological changes in the early church that apart from the resurrection make no sense at all. Christians began celebrating and continue to celebrate today communion and baptism. Communion remembers the death of Jesus. Baptism remembers the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, in communion, we remember Jesus' body broken in bread, Jesus' blood shed in drink in our place for our sins. We remember the death of Jesus. 
We celebrate communion every week or the Lord's table every week because Jesus told us to. And that was the practice of all Christians until there was a schism at the time of the Reformation in the 16th or 17th century. So Christians are supposed to celebrate communion every week. That's why we make it the centerpiece of our service. It's in the middle because it's all about Jesus. And, And communion is remembering his death and baptism is remembering his resurrection. And what we show forth in baptism is that if you believe in Jesus and you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then as Jesus died, you will die. And as Jesus was buried, you will be buried. And as Jesus rose, you will rise, right? And that's what it means to be in Christ. And just as water cleanses us from the filth of dirt, so Jesus cleanses us from the filth of sin. And so communion and baptism are about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and they're inextricably connected. And the point is that Christians have been doing this now for a few millennia. Why? Because Jesus died, was buried, and rose for us. And if we trust in him, we will die and be buried and rise like him, to be with him, because he's still alive, and he's the God of life. And so apart from the resurrection of Jesus, communion and baptism are nonsense. They make no sense at all why they would have come into existence. Sixth line of reasoning is that the early Christian church grew and spread not based upon just the moral teaching or example of Jesus. Some of you will say, well, Christianity grew because it's good for families, love your neighbor, help the poor. That's why it grew. Well, all of that is true, but that's not why it grew. The continual heralding of the early church was that Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. He was dead, he was buried, but now Jesus is alive. And that was the issue of early Christian preaching and teaching that is recorded in the book of Acts, which is the history book of early Christianity. A while back, I went through Acts, and I just highlighted every occasion where the resurrection of Jesus is spoken of, and it appears in 12 of the 28 chapters. And the general flow of the book is they will go out and proclaim, the eyewitnesses would, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And then it explains the reactions, persecution, Christian conversion, baptisms, all kinds of controversy. It changes everything. And then they go to another city. Jesus is alive. We saw Jesus. Jesus is alive. And then it explains the reaction of that community of people. And that is the flow, generally speaking, of the book of Acts. Why would people be quitting their jobs and taking time off of work and going from town to town to get beat up and drug into court and hated, saying, I saw Jesus alive, I saw Jesus alive, if Jesus wasn't alive? How do we explain that kind of motivation for ordinary folk? Additionally, uh, the seventh line of circumstantial reasoning for the resurrection of Jesus is that his tomb was not enshrined. Now, in that day, like our day, when someone dies that we deeply love, we visit their graveside to memorialize them. We leave cards and flowers and food, light candles and shed tears, and we remember them. And in our city, there are famous people like Kurt Cobain or like uh, Jimi Hendrix that you will find memorials and shrines to where people still gather and leave gifts and cards and prayers and flowers and, and, uh, and light candles and such. Yet... That was not done at the tomb of Jesus, right? In the day of Jesus, there were some 50 religious leaders who had died in that general vicinity whose tombs had been enshrined. Had you gone there, you would see piles of flowers and gifts and artwork. And there are places like that even in our own city. I was driving from our West Seattle service today and someone apparently died on the side of the road and there's a large shrine built there in their memory and people have brought gifts and flowers and left them there in memory of the deceased. That's what we do. Yet in the day of Jesus, 50 such tombs of holy men were enshrined and people would go there to weep and write prayers and give gifts and remember their life. Yet at the tomb of Jesus, nothing. No flowers, no cards, no indie rocker kids listen to emo, all depressed, nothing. Why? He wasn't there. You don't go to the tomb, Jesus, I miss you. Jesus, why did you die? Jesus, you want to do lunch? I mean, that's the way it went. He's alive and well. You could go in and have lunch with him. There's no need to go to the tomb. He was there for three days. He's not there anymore. He's alive and well. If you want to see Jesus, you don't go to the tomb and cry. You go into town and celebrate. That's what you do. And if the tomb wasn't enshrined, it's because everybody knew the body wasn't there. And the eighth line of circumstantial reasoning is how do you explain the growth of Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus? 
Christianity started off as a religion with 120 people meeting in an upper room. By the reign of the emperor Constantine in about the 4th century, Christianity had become the most popular religion in the most powerful, long-standing, far-reaching nation on the earth, and it overtaken the Roman Empire. Today, on planet earth, one in three human beings worships Jesus Christ as God. A few billion people worship Jesus Christ as God. And the question is, if Jesus is still dead, how in the world do you explain the explosion of Christianity in its early days to its present popularity? There is no other reason. It's cause and effect. Dead guy, billions of worshipers. How does that work? Unless Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. Again, two men were crucified with Jesus. Jesus has one-third of all human beings worshiping him. The other two-thirds are not split between Jack and Hank, right? Wherever these guys' names were, we don't even know their names. They didn't get a religion. Nobody worships them. Billions aren't singing songs to them. We don't have holidays for them. We don't get together to honor their legacy. But they all died in the same way. They all died on the same day. They all died in the same place, yet only one is worshiped. Why? That one came back from death. Jesus, that's why. So in addition to the biblical evidence, those are eight lines of circumstantial evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And again, at this point, I'm anticipating resistance among some. Some of you will say, but that's a lot of Bible. I know this is a church and you're a pastor, but I'm not a Christian and all you gave me is Bible. I'm a skeptic. I like history. I like objective sources as if there were such a thing. right. I had that same perspective until I was 19 years of age. I was a freshman in college. I did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And then I began examining the evidence because it kept coming up in philosophy and world religion classes and history classes and such as we dealt with the legacy of Christianity. And I thought, I better come to my own conclusion on the resurrection of Jesus. I didn't think he had risen, but I thought I'll double check and see. And I began looking and I looked at the biblical evidence. I looked at the circumstantial evidence. But what was helpful to me was the historical evidence. I wanted to know, are there any non-Christians who say that Jesus rose from death from the early days of the Christian faith? Because if I could find credible sources like news anchors or historians who were not Christians who would tell me that Jesus rose, then that would help to verify the factuality of the New Testament account of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, as a Christian today, I believe that the Scripture is the highest authority But in that day, it was really helpful for me to see that supplemental and additional authorities were in complete agreement and harmony with Scripture. It verified what Scripture said. So I will share those with you. There are more that I could share, but I will share three for the sake of time. And the primary cultural groupings in that day were Greeks and Romans and Jews. And so I'm going to look at some people who did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, who were from some different cultures than being Christian, the first being a historian named Josephus, okay? And again, we're talking about credible historians who worked for the emperor, right? They're commissioned by the government as leading historians. We're not looking at a 13-year-old kid with a blog and a bunch of crazy ideas, right? We're looking at major network anchors, dependable, trustworthy news reporters. We're looking at established historians who are going out and doing investigative research like a journalist for emperors, for powerful political leaders. These are the best minds and the best thinkers of the day. The first is Josephus. He was born just a few years after Jesus died. Eyewitnesses were still alive so that he could interview them. The most celebrated passage that he has is called the Testimonium Testimonium Flavinum, and it comes from his book, The Antiquities. And I'll read to you a fairly lengthy section. He says, About this time there lived Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus. A wise man, if one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. I'll stop there and read the rest of the moment. But let me summarize what he says. He says, well, I went out and did all the homework. Here's the story of Jesus. Because the emperor wants to know, what's this talk about Jesus? Why is everybody worshiping Jesus? He's not even here. Why is he so popular? Why is his religion growing? He says, well, I did all the work and here's the deal. Jesus lived. He was a teacher and a miracle worker. He said amazing things. He did amazing things. 
He was convicted of saying he was God, right, the highest accusation, and then he was put to death, he was executed, he died. Yet, even though he died, people still worship him and love him. Why? Why that devotion? He goes on to explain. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. This is the journalistic, historical description of the person and work of Jesus from a non-Christian. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. The reason why everybody loves Jesus and won't quit talking about him, he died and came back to life. He resurrected. He beat death. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him and the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Question, why is Christianity growing? Answer, Jesus rose from death. That's the non-Christian's answer. Second, Sotenes was uh, born a little bit after the life of Jesus. He was a Roman historian and analyst for the imperial house. Again, credible news source, credible historical figure. He says, punishment or persecution was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. What he means by superstition is what we would call miracle or supernatural claim. Here's what was going on. In that day, they began persecuting Christians, particularly under the Roman emperor Nero's rule. Uh, For those of you who don't understand this, to be a Christian was a very painful journey to commit oneself to. Christians, he says here, were being punished. They were being persecuted, right? Why were they being punished? Why were they being persecuted? Because they said, Jesus is the only God. He's the only man who's ever beat death. Because in Rome, you were allowed to have whatever religion you wanted as long as you also worship the emperor's God. And the Christians said, no, we won't worship the emperor, just Jesus. They said, then we will kill you. And they said, that's fine. Jesus rose from death. There's life after death. You can't scare us with death. It's amazing how much power is taken away from your enemies when you don't fear death. And people were put to death in large numbers. Christians were murdered. Uh, Some were wrapped in pitch and resin while they were still alive. A stake was run through them. They were put in the ground like a torch. They were lit aflame to illuminate state-sponsored parties. Christians. Other Christians were sewn in the skins of wild animals and thrown to beasts to be eaten alive for sport and fun. Some Christians were brought into the arena where the gladiators and wild animals just destroyed and annihilated them for public sport. And some Christians were drawn and quartered, meaning they would take ropes and tie our limbs to horses, whip the horses, send them in four directions and rip our arms and legs off of our bodies and leave us to die in that bloodied, painful way. And what he's saying is this, we punish the Christians, we persecute the Christians, but they just won't go away because they're convinced of the resurrection and death does not scare them anymore. Jesus rose and we can't scare them. And they won't give up their ultimate allegiance to him alone. And then lastly, Pliny the Younger. And again, there are many. I could bring a gentleman named Tacitus. There are, there are other historical examples, but these are a few. Pliny the Younger was born shortly after the life of Jesus. Uh, Pliny the Younger became governor of Bithynia, which is in northern Turkey in the second century. Again, educated man, prominent man, historical figure, not some obscure secondary news source or hack historian. In a letter written around 111 AD to the Emperor Trajan, he explains early Christian worship services. Let me give you some backdrop on this. Christian worship services early on tended to be closed meetings. They didn't open to the public as we do. Why? They were murdering Christians. When they're murdering Christians, you tend to meet privately, right? Because you don't want someone to come in and kill the whole church. What happened then is there was a lot of misunderstanding about Christian church services, and people were wondering, what do those Christians do when they get together for church? Because they heard, oh, they eat flesh and they drink blood. They're cannibals. That's what they heard. So they started doing investigation. They didn't get the subtlety of metaphor. You know, 
the, the bread is representative of Jesus' body and the wine is representative of Jesus' blood. We're actually not eating and drinking human flesh and blood. It's, it's metaphorical. We're having bread and we're having wine and that's what we're doing. So there was the commissioning of an investigation to discover what do these Christians believe and when they get together for church, what exactly do they do? And here is the report in a letter that was written to the emperor Trajan. He says, I have never been present at an examination of Christians, meaning the the worship services are closed, so I I didn't get into one. He goes on to say, Consequently, I do not know the nature of the extent of the punishment usually meted out to them, nor the grounds for starting an investigation how far it should be pressed. Since I haven't been there, I'm not sure how much we should persecute these guys and what kind of charges we should bring them up on. But I did interview some of them, he will say, and here is what they report. They also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day. What day? Sunday. Why? It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. When do they meet? At sunrise. Why? Because that's when Jesus rose. And what did they do when they got together to remember the resurrection of Jesus? To chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to God. They open the Old Testament, they read stuff about the Messiah, that's about Jesus, that's about Jesus, and they tie everything in the Bible to Jesus, they sing songs to Jesus, they pray prayers to Jesus, they live their life for Jesus, they get together to remember the resurrection of Jesus at daybreak on Sunday morning to read the Bible and pray and worship Jesus as God because the resurrection of Jesus has forever changed their hearts, minds, and lives. It's just a fact. I mean, the evidence is just there. Lots of eyewitnesses, including those who are non-Christians, who didn't even believe in the resurrection, who say, well, that's what happened. So much so that the alternate explanation that was given by the opponents of the resurrection is not that Jesus was dead and lying in a tomb. The alternate explanation that was given by the opponents of the resurrection was that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, not that he rose, but what happened to the body? It was stolen. That was the alternate explanation that was given. No one even denied in the early days of you know, the resurrection that the tomb was empty. That was just agreed upon. We all know where the tomb was and it's empty. How do we account for the missing body? So the opponents of the resurrection said, they stole the body. What does that not account for? The body coming back to life. I hate to point out the big E on the eye chart, but whether or not the body was stolen, and it wasn't, but even if the body was stolen, it's alive again. You still got to explain that, right? It'd be like if I told you I stole Kurt Cobain's body. You'd be like, really? Yes, and he's here to sing a song. You'd be like, now that, that was unexpected right there. The solo, <laughs> the, now the solo, that, the stealing the body thing, that wasn't, you know, that, that doesn't surprise me. That could happen. But the singing the solo thing, that, that I wasn't seeing that coming. You know, that, that's what happened. I mean, they couldn't even account for the facts. In an effort to cover up the obvious, they said, the body was stolen. Okay, great. Hypothetically, the body was stolen. Again, which it wasn't. This isn't weekend at Bernie's, right? I mean, you know, Jesus is being carted around by his buddies eating Slurpees. I mean, this is not how it went down. He's alive. And some then will say, well, he didn't rise physically. Some will say, he rose spiritually, metaphorically in our hearts. And Jehovah's Witnesses will say, he didn't rise physically, not in a physical body. Sure he did. Give you some lines of evidence. Luke 24, 39, they came to Jesus after he, well, he came to them after he'd risen from death and they were all spooked. You can imagine having a funeral. Three days later, the guy shows up at your house. You're spooked, Right. You're like, I got to get the toilet paper. I'll be right back. You know, I, I mean, it's a spooky thing. A dead guy comes to your house after you had his funeral. And Jesus shows up and they're all spooked. And they say, or, you know, they're wondering, are you a ghost? Are you a spirit? He says, no, 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 no. It's me, Jesus. I'm back, body and blood. He says, quote, a, a spirit, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as I do, end quote. It's my body. I'm here Physically. Thomas says, I don't believe it. He said, well, come on over, Thomas. You can touch my physical body. Check out my crucifixion scars. Jesus went for walks. People hugged Jesus. The Bible says that people fell at his feet and grabbed his ankles and his legs. People came up and threw themselves on him. Jesus, you're alive. Gave him big hugs. He ate food. He had breakfast. He went for walks. I mean, he's, 
He's physically there. He's literally physically alive. Why does this matter? We who trust in Jesus, we will die and rise. And it is not just that we get some eternity where our soul goes to be with the Lord. There will also be a day when we, like Jesus, will get a resurrection body, 1 Corinthians 15 says. That his is the pattern and precedent for our resurrection. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more curse. He will wipe every tear from our eye and we will get a physical body and we will live forever on the earth as God intended before sin came into the world. Now, again, I'll remind you where I began of 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is dead, this is a horrible, cruel, sadistic hoax. I mean, here we are praying to a dead guy, singing to a dead guy. We're having meetings for a dead guy. I'm telling you, if Jesus is dead, there are better things to do with ch- than go to church. I mean, there's rum and cokes to drink. There's nachos to eat. There's a world filled with chicken wings. There are other things to be doing. There are games on TV. There are concerts that you should go to. Uh, there are people that you should go out and break commandments with. I mean, if Jesus is dead, then go the Hugh Hefner route and time's a waste and I'll, I'll give you a refund on all your tithes and you can go to happy hour. If Jesus is dead, it changes everything. I tell you, if Jesus is dead, religion is dumb. What a waste of time. I mean, you're all here. You guys could be somewhere else. There's so many other things to be doing if all you're going to do is die and cease to exist or have no consequence. If Jesus is dead, Christianity is the meanest, cruelest hoax that has ever been performed. We're praying to this man. We're singing to this man. On our deathbed, we're trusting our eternity to this man. We bury grandma in the hole and we long for the day of granny's resurrection because she loved Jesus. I mean, what, what a cruel, false hope if Jesus is a dead man. But Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. This is the most wonderful truth. This is the most unparalleled miracle. Every other religious leader is dead. Moses, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, Gandhi, Zoroaster, they're dead. They're really dead. They haven't come back. They haven't conquered sin. They haven't conquered death. Just Jesus. He is distinct from, superior to everyone. So what does this mean? This means that sin does not win, but Jesus does. This means that death does not win, but Jesus does. This means that that hopelessness does not win, but Jesus does. This means the grave does not win. The empty tomb is the final word of Jesus. What this means is that Jesus really did die for our sin and really did rise for our salvation. And we can sing to Jesus today because he's alive. And we can pray to Jesus today and he will hear us and answer our prayers because he is alive. And we can confess our sins to Jesus today and he will forgive us and embrace us because he has defeated sin and death and he is alive. And his words in John eleven twenty five are so wonderful. He says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, he shall what? He'll live. That's eternal life. Life forever without sin with Jesus. That's what it's all about. I say this because some of you are here and you're not Christians. This is the issue. But if I had to put one issue on the table, the resurrection of Jesus is the issue. He said, I'm God who came to take away sin. I'll die and rise three days later to prove it. This is the issue. I hope I've given you sufficient cause to be compelled to believe in Jesus and give your heart and life to him today and become a Christian. Ask him to forgive you and devote yourself to Jesus. And he will. He's alive and well. He's seated in heaven. He is God. And he can and will hear prayer. He can and does forgive sin. Some of you are here and you are Christians, but you've been wavering in your faith. I want this to solidify your faith, to give you firm foundation. For those of you who are Christians, you have friends, family, coworkers who don't know Jesus. You may not know where to start with them talking about Jesus. Start with this issue because this is the big one. And lovingly, graciously, kindly explain to them why you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and ask them if they have any better 
alternative rendering of cause-effect, how to explain everything without the resurrection, because we want as many people as possible to know Jesus. And now it's our opportunity collectively and your opportunity individually to respond to the living Jesus. Confess your sin to him, pray your prayers to him, sing your songs to him, celebrate him. He's alive and well and he is here to meet us and God inhabits the praises of his people. This is a meeting for Jesus. This is a meeting with the living Jesus. When you're ready, those of you who are Christian or become Christian, you can come forward for communion, which is where we celebrate Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection to take away our sins through his body and blood. And we will give of our tithes and offerings to help the word of Jesus spread through our city and world. And we'll celebrate Jesus and live here, empower, leave here rather, empowered by the same Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from death, living the new life, the resurrection life of the victory of Jesus. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, you told us to sing to you, so now we will. You told us to pray to you, and so now we do. You said that you came down from heaven to die for our sins and to rise for our salvation. By, by, by faith, we believe that. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to penetrate the hearts and minds of those who hear this, that, Lord Jesus, they would have certainty about your resurrection, and that would give them certainty about their resurrection. Jesus, I thank you that death is not the final word. I thank you that sin is not the final word. I thank you that tears and funerals and burial plots and sadness and grief and loneliness and loss are not the final words, but the resurrection is the final word. May we remember that every day, particularly when we get out of bed on Sunday. May we remember the great day that you rose from your place of burial and walked into the world to evidence to us all that you alone are the living God. You are the God of love and that you are alive to be with us. We love you and we now respond and we thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.